0: Good evening. Uh, My name is Tim. Um, I'm glad you're with us. Tonight we're doing the fourth of our talks at this mid-year conference on the kingdom of God. So if you're a visitor amongst us, it's great to have you with us. I'm sorry that you're sort of coming into the middle of something. Um, But as we go, I hope some of the things we say will sort of fill you in on some of what we've done over the week. We've been looking at Luke's gospel and asking the question, what does Jesus teach us about the kingdom of God? And what does he do that tell us what this kingdom is about? Has it come? What's it doing? Tonight we turn to a slightly different but connected question. What was Jesus' mission? Now, Jesus has been conscripted to support almost any and every cause under the sun. It's quite easy to do it. You just find something that Jesus said or did that fits what you think is really important. So for some people, Jesus is the great revolutionary. I'm sure he was hardly the supporter of the establishment, but a revolutionary doesn't seem to quite fit the bill. For others, well, Jesus is a bodybuilder extraordinaire. Yeah, see that? After all, he was a carpenter, wasn't he? And carpenters in the ancient world, they had to get their, their trees out of the forest. Of course, they were buff. So that's what Jesus is. Or for others, of course, he's gentle, Jesus, meek and mild. He welcomed the children. Not quite sure how you put those two together, but who cares? Or maybe Jesus is the patron saint of the humble service brigade, support Christian programs of serving the poor and needy because he did serve, or a mystic, or a scholar. He was into the books, he'd studied, he knew things. For others, Jesus is a healer, and he's used to promote every sort of healing ministry you can imagine, whether it's miraculous or medical or emotional healing. He helps each of them. In fact, you can sort of fit Jesus into any box you want to. You can find something that Jesus said or something that he did to support your cause. I read just recently that Tony Campalo has constricted Jesus into supporting gay marriage and churches welcoming gays in as Christian brothers and sisters. He does it on the basis of something Jesus said. He says, for me, the defining question on judgment day will be how each one of us has responded to the least of these. Therefore, To disapprove of gay couples is to oppose the mission of Jesus. I beg to differ. He's been conscripted as a platform of free enterprise capitalism and communist socialism. Not quite sure how you put those together, but you can make him fit if you want to. He's been roped in to be the champion of almost every cause under the sun. The proliferation and the diversions should warn us that often it's wrong. We can just conscript Jesus as the patron of my mission, of my cause, which really is blasphemy. There's a pressing need for us to listen to Jesus himself, his own explanation of his mission. We could do this from any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, or even from the epistles, but we're looking at Luke this week. So let's do it from Luke. So back in chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus comes into the synagogue at Capernaum, sorry, at Nazareth, in Luke chapter 4. I've got to flip around and find it. If you've got a Bible with you, you might like to follow these passages if you're reasonably quick at flipping. If not, stick at chapter 19, the bit that was read. We'll get there pretty soon. So in 4.18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He sees himself as a gospeler, anointed by the Spirit of God to proclaim, to preach. He's announcing the time of God's intervention, the time of God's kingdom coming. This week we've been trying to understand what Jesus means by the kingdom and I've sort of worked out what I think is an accurate description of what Jesus meant. It'll come up, I hope, on the screen. Next one, there it is. The kingdom of God is a permanent new state of affairs brought about by God's decisive intervention in human history through his servant Messiah who defeats God's enemies and the enemies of his people and brings the blessings of his victory and rule to all his people from all nations. It's about God doing something in this world to change it. Jesus says, I've come to announce that. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 22, he's challenged uh, about who he eats and drinks with, and he gives them this answer. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's Jesus explaining his mission. He's come to call sinners to repentance. Use this image of a doctor. Well, who needs the services of a doctor? Why do doctors spend 10 years or more uh, getting themselves trained? So they can help sick people, isn't it? It's pretty obvious. Doctors, sick people, they go together. Do you see the significance then? Jesus is equating himself to a doctor They come for sick people. He's come for sinners. Sinners may be sick or healthy, rich or poor, but rebels against God under the judgment of God, they're the people he's come for. Not to condemn them, but to summon them to follow him, like Levi, who is just summoned. Summon them to enter his kingdom. And he's come to call them to repentance. Repentance means to turn around. You're going in this direction. To repent is to turn around and go in the opposite direction. If you've been rejecting God, living independently from God, then repentance is to turn around from that, turn back towards God. We'll see a bit more of this when we come to the prodigal son. He's come not just to leave them behaving the way they were, but to call them to be part of his kingdom, which means changing their lives. Often Christians have trouble sort of working out this thing about Jesus being saviour and Lord. As if Jesus could be your saviour without being your Lord. You can trust him to save you, but you don't need to come under the lordship of his life. Maybe that's a second tier of Christianity. But as we've been exploring the kingdom, do you see how silly that is? Jesus can only save because he is Lord. It's only possible to save us because he's won the victory, conquered evil and Satan and death. That's what he saves us from by being the Lord and conqueror of those things. He's begun his kingdom. It's real, it exists now. You enter the kingdom, you're saved by coming under his kingship. So, of course, being saved means repenting from your life of sin and independence from God, of doing your own thing. And time and time again in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about his purpose of coming to suffer and die and rise. In chapter 9, He's just put the climactic question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Peter's replied, you are the Christ, God's Messiah. That's who you are. And then Jesus, verse 21 of chapter 9 and 22, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. He must die and rise again. It's a divine necessity. It's God's plan and purpose for him that he go to the cross. He sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem because that's where he will die. He doesn't go to Jerusalem because there's more disadvantaged people there. He goes there because his mission is to die and rise again. We saw this morning that Jesus said that his mission involved overpowering the strong one, Satan who holds people captive through evil. He paints this picture of the the strong man Satan having all his possessions around him securely locked away in his own castle. He feels strong and safe, but someone stronger comes and overpowers him and rips off his goods. Well, that's what Jesus has been doing. He's come to bring liberty to those captive by Satan, by the evil that he's, he's spun. Or in chapter 19, verse 10, We reach this climactic point in Luke's Gospel where Jesus says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to find lost people. He came to seek them. There's something active. There's an initiative there. It's not that Jesus is sitting back waiting for lost people to come. The English poet Francis Thompson coined the phrase, the hound of heaven. You see the picture that creates? You know what hounds do? They get the scent of a hare and they will not let it go. They will chase it, come hell or high water, till they catch it. And he pictures Jesus as being like that. He comes to seek, to hound people, the hound of heaven, seeking out people. But he's seeking them to save them, not just to find them, but to rescue them. And the ones he wants to rescue are the lost, they're just called the lost in that absolute sense. His perception of people is that they are lost. And in the story of Zacchaeus, we see almost a, well, a prime example of Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost. This statement of Jesus, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, is at the end of this story about Zacchaeus. It makes sense of this story. It helps us understand the story and Jesus. Now, Zacchaeus, we're told, was a wealthy tax collector. People thought of him as a sinner, which was a derogatory term because he was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors are never popular, are they? I mean, in our culture, the government has done a very clever thing. They've given tax collecting over to your your employer. Of course, then we hate our employer who takes the money out of our pay packets instead of hating the government who get the money in the end. We don't like tax collectors. But in the ancient world, it was far, far worse. Zacchaeus was in Judea a Roman province where he collected taxes for the Romans. But on top of that, he could collect as much taxes as he wanted for himself. And so he was both a traitor, a sellout to his own country, and corrupt. And he'd grown rich on his collecting of taxes. He was disliked by all, a social outcast. And on top of that, <laughs> we're told he was short. And whatever the culture is, that <laughs> opens you up to be the butt of every joke. Doesn't it, James? Now, I'm struggling to see over the top of this as well. Notice James stands in front of it because he struggles even more than me. I need something to put my notes on. I'm struggling. If you can only see me from this far up, sorry, that is the best part of me. He wants to see Jesus, and we're told that Jesus wants to see him as well. He, he actually is just really curious. He, he wants to see, we're told, who Jesus was, not to meet him, He's just a bit curious about this guy that, that there's so many rumours about. There's obstacles, so he climbs a tree where he knows Jesus is going to go. But when Jesus comes to the tree, he sees Zacchaeus, and he's not just another face in the crowd. And Jesus initiates this conversation with him. He says, Zacchaeus, get down here immediately. I must stay at your house today. It's necessary for me to come. He invites himself to Zacchaeus's house to stay, not sure how long, but to stay for a little while. Now, for us, that feels rude, doesn't it? You wouldn't normally do that, invite yourself to somebody else's place for an indefinite time. But notice Zacchaeus doesn't see it that way. He sees it as an incredible privilege that Jesus, this great teacher and preacher, this one that everyone is talking about, the one who's been healing people, the one proclaiming the kingdom of God, wants to come and have dinner with him. He accepts straight away. He climbs down immediately and welcomes Jesus gladly. In a tangible sense, Jesus, by saying, I'm coming to your place, is offering him forgiveness, acceptance. And Zacchaeus feels some of that significance. He's excited to host Jesus at home. The community might grumble saying, Jesus, gone with those sinners again. They might despise Jesus and Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus is thrilled. And then we hear what he does. He stands up in verse 8. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody anybody of anything, I'll pay it back four times. Now, for somebody in Zacchaeus' position, somebody who's been made rich on his corruption, that is a complete change of heart. That is a whole life reorientation from accumulating wealth, even by cheating people, to giving away half of his possessions. Can you imagine your family doing that? I'm not sure what your family's worth. Add up their real estate and superannuation. I presume it's, I don't know, a million dollars? Just give away half. That's almost unthinkable, isn't it? Something has changed deep down in Zacchaeus's heart. Money is no longer what he's living for. And if he's cheated anybody... He'll give them four times restitution. Presumably, he's turning his back on cheating as well as accumulating. Jesus had said he was calling sinners to repentance. Do you see what repentance looks like here? The story before is interesting, very sharp contrast. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus eventually says to him, sell everything you got, come follow me. And he won't do it. He walked away sad. course, he was very wealthy. His wealth meant more to him than Jesus. But Zacchaeus has changed. It might be very, very hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, but this one has. It's not impossible. Jesus says he came to save the lost, not from their poverty or sickness. Zacchaeus didn't have that, but from their exclusion from God, from being outside God's people, God's kingdom. You know people like Zacchaeus, they're actually well off, they're okay, they're doing well in life, probably some of your fellow students, they're like that, but totally lost when it comes to God, totally lost when it comes to eternal life. Jesus comes into his life and he experiences at least the first fruits of what salvation means because Jesus comes and has lunch with him, he has that personal acceptance and welcome from Jesus a welcome into his kingdom. But this is not the first time in Luke's Gospel that Jesus has talked about the lost. In fact, there's been a whole chapter of it back in chapter 15. So come with me if you've got a Bible to Luke chapter 15. Some of these stories might be familiar. In fact, if you're with us, if you're doing stream one of the Uncover training, you will have read this story today, at least part of it. The context is that Jesus again is having dinner, meals, celebrations with tax collectors and sinners, the unsavory parts of society. And the Pharisees and some of the religious hobnobs uh, don't like what Jesus is doing. So he tells them these stories. First one's about a lost sheep, verse 4. Suppose if one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, what do you do? Well, I guess some people would say stupid sheep. It, It deserves whatever it gets. Can't it read a map? Well, I'll just leave it out there. But no, this owner searches for its sheep. And when he finds it, he takes it home, carries it home on his shoulders, and he calls all his neighbours in and says, I want to have a party. And the point is in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven. That is more rejoicing by God over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It tells a story about a lost coin, similar sort of thing. But it's the third story about the lost son that it's filled out. It becomes more personal. It's now about people, not sheep or coins. That's called the parable of the lost son, but it's actually the story about two lost sons. Both of them are lost, but in different ways. The younger son, we hear about him first. Verse 12, he comes to the father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. That's an incredible thing to ask a father. Imagine being the dad. Your son comes to you and says, Dad, don't care about you. I just want your stuff, and I want it now. What you would leave to me, I want now. That is, he's really saying to his dad, just drop dead. I couldn't care less about you. I just want your money. And what would the dad, what do you expect the dad to do? Any self-respecting dad would refuse, wouldn't they? They'd be, it's unheard of that somebody would treat their father in such a disgraceful, insolent way. He'd be punished for it. But this father surprisingly agrees. He divides up the land, the, the family inheritance, and the younger son gets his part. And as soon as it's practicable, verse 13, the younger son got together all he had. That is, he sold off his bit of property and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He gathers the cash. He gets as far away from home from dad as he can. He doesn't want to be part of the family. He just wants a good time. And money can buy you lots of good time, wine and women and friends, but he goes through it all. And then we're told a famine hits. And so in verse 15, he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country who sent him to to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Even the pigs had a better life than he had. He hits rock bottom. Then we're told in verse 17, this, this beautiful phrase, he came to his senses. It's great because it recognizes that the behavior he, he'd uh, gone through had been stupid and stubborn and perverse. He remembers home and he comes to his senses because at home, even the hired servants had plenty to eat. His father was generous. And so he makes up a plan. He says, I'll, I'll go home. I'll go back to my father, verse 18, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up to go towards his father. He prepares his little speech. He, he pleads n- not to be accepted back. That, that would be impossible. But just to be treated as a hired servant. Get, get a bit of pay. Get something to eat. Now, what do you think the father is going to do? Will he accept the apology and take him on as a worker? That's the best he could hope for. Or would he toss him out in the street? I remember a friend of mine telling me that he read this story that Jesus told with some international students. And he asked them, you know, in your culture, what would the father do if the son came back? Their answer was they'd run him out of the village. That's the only option. Well, what does this father do? He does neither. While he was still a long way away, his father saw him. He was watching. He was still a long way away, but he's on the lookout. He sees his son, and he's filled with compassion, not with anger, not with blame, not with questions about what's happened to the money. And he runs to his son. Now, an old man running is a bizarre thing. It's... It's undignified. Old men never run. Think Darth Vader. You can't imagine him running, can you? He'd never run. He always walks with slow dignity. And every man worth his salt does that in that culture. But this father runs to his son. He girds up his loins and he dashes down the road and embraces and kisses. And the son starts his little speech and he just cuts him off. And he says, let's throw a party. Kill the fatted calf. That means there's a party for the whole village. It's not a little family affair. The whole village will be there. And he honours him as a son, despite everything that he's done. To seek and to save the lost. Do you see what it means to be lost? Lost is not essentially when he was hungry and in poverty in that distant land feeding pigs. He was lost from the time he asked his dad for the inheritance and cut himself off from his father in every way that he could. Lost is primarily relational. It's a rejection of God. He wants God's stuff, but he doesn't want God. It's that autonomy. I I want to do it my way. It's my life. I don't want God ruling. I don't want God interfering. I just want his gifts. You've seen that, haven't you? I just want the air that God provides. I just want the food that He makes grow. I I want all the gifts that He gives, but I don't want God. So, that behavior of the younger son is not just perverse, it's evil, isn't it? But it describes so accurately the behavior of most people living in Australia, doesn't it? It described what I was like as a 12, 13 year old. I just wanted to be one of the boys, I wanted to have fun. God was a nuisance. So I pretended he didn't exist. I still breathed his air. I still enjoyed so much of the world he'd created. I just didn't want him in my life. And you may or may not be wildly immoral, but it's still profoundly evil. He's lost, distant from God, deliberately. We see too something of what repentance and forgiveness and being found looks like, what salvation looks like. Repentance is that turning around, in his attitude towards his father, in our attitude towards God, from wanting to be distant to returning, coming to his senses, apologising, seeking to restore. We see too something of the father that is incredible. He's unsure of the father's response. He doesn't know what his father will do. And that's understandable. Will his father forgive him and will there be any sort of welcome or, or, or won't he? I came across a story recently a story of a, a of a hobo living on the streets disabled smelly old guy who one day was trudging out from the inner city to the suburbs where he usually where he used to come from he'd been living on the streets in the city for 20 years since he'd ransacked his parents' house and taken everything he could pawn but now 20 years later he was homesick he wanted to see his parents again after all the time he longed for his mum's cooking and a warm bed but he was uncertain how he'd be received. A week before he'd posted a letter home telling his parents he wanted to see them. But he added a note at the bottom of the letter. I realise you might not want to see me. If you do want to see me, just put a white handkerchief in my old bedroom window. If it's not there, I won't bother you. caught the bus out towards home. He finally turned into the street where he used to live. He looked for that familiar red brick house. But it didn't seem to be there anymore. It should have been between that blue one and the two-story mansion. But those houses were still there, but the house between looked sort of white. He wondered whether his parents had moved on without telling him. But as he got closer to the house, he realised it was white because it was festooned with sheets and towels and pillowcases and toilet paper and tissue and everything that they could find that was white. It was just dazzling white all over. His parents were taking no risk whatsoever. And that's what God the Father is like, isn't he? He runs to his son. He restores him to the very best. He throws a party in his honour. And that's what being found is like. The Father looking out for you, longing to see you. And when you come home, welcoming you with open arms into his kingdom. That's the younger son, but the older son plays a role in this story as well. Verse 25 Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, unlike the other one. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's angry at his father's uh, actions. And did you hear what he said? Read between the lines a little bit. What he says to his dad is, "Dad, <laughs> I don't want your stuff. I don't want you either. I just want your stuff. I've slaved out." All my life, I've slaved my guts out to earn your stuff, unlike the other one. Why don't you give it to me? I deserve it. He doesn't really want his father as father. He doesn't think of himself as a son. He's a slave who earns what he wants from his dad. And you realize that he's actually just as distant from his dad as the younger son in a very different way. He wants to earn his way. And when his father welcomes the younger son back, he finds himself completely at odds with his father. He doesn't want to go into the party. He's just a dutiful servant. And his father's words to him are beautiful. My son, he, he wants him as a son. He may not think of himself as one, but his father wants him as a son. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. You don't have to earn anything. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Well, what did the son do? Did he go into the party? Jesus doesn't tell us, does he? He leaves the story open ended. Because he suspects that many of us are like that older son. We do our duty towards God. We actually don't want him as our father, we don't want to be part of the family, we just want his stuff because we like it. What will you do? Will you come in and join the party or stay distant from the Father? Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. How does he do it? Well, we've seen something of it. He invites Zacchaeus in, but that's just one person, isn't it? As we read through Luke, we find that the the climax of the way in which he seeks and saves the lost is in his own death and resurrection. He sets his face like flint to Jerusalem because he goes there to die. And in chapter 22, we have a fascinating, almost holy ground sort of experience, an insight into what it means for Jesus. Jesus goes up to the Mount of Olives in verse 39 of chapter 22 to pray. This is the night before he's arrested. Sorry, the night he is arrested, the night before he's crucified the next morning. One of the interesting things about Luke's account is that when you actually get to the crucifixion itself, the thing that seems most painful, it's told men are very matter-of-factly and they crucified him with a thief on either side. There's no gut-wrenching emotional close-ups. But back in chapter 22, we sort of do get that emotional close-up. It's like we're let into Jesus and what's going on inside him. His heart is on on his sleeve as he faces his own death. We're told that when he reaches the place, he says to the disciples with him, verse 40, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's almost embarrassing to see Jesus like this, isn't it? It's like seeing someone falling apart in front of your eyes, and you want to turn away and say, it's too hard for him and for me, for me to see this. But Luke wants us to see it. Jesus wants us to see what is happening. This emotionally charged, earnest prayer, we're told out of deep, deep anguish. And we overhear his desire, his prayer. He prays to the Father, take this cup from me. That's what he wants. He wants to avoid some sort of pain. And avoiding pain is natural, isn't it? There's nothing wrong in itself with wanting to avoid pain. In fact, you'd have to be a bit perverse to enjoy pain. Nothing wrong with that. But he feels something more. There's another layer for Jesus. Because to avoid pain in this situation is a temptation, not just a desire. He says to his, his disciples, pray that you won't fall into temptation. He's aware that it's an hour of temptation. This perfectly legitimate desire is a temptation to go against the Father's will, to disobey the Father. But he expresses it in this cryptic way about a cup. But what is this cup? This prospect of drinking a cup full of something fills him with dread and anguish. It's sort of strange because if you follow Jesus through Luke's Gospel, he always looks like he's completely in control. He's always calm, nothing ruffles him, but here he's totally ruffled. He's falling apart in front of our eyes. This cup, the idea of a cup in the Old Testament is actually a very common image, an image for the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Let me just read to you one passage from Isaiah chapter 51 verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. See, really strong, gritty wine just leaves you feeling terrible. It makes you stagger in drunkenness. The the dregs at the bottom taste terrible. And when you're forced to drink the cup to its dregs, it's a well, just a pretty horrible sort of thing to do. And it becomes an image then, a a picture, a a common experience that explains what it means to come under the judgment of God. It's like drinking that cup. Because in God's judgment, is an angry judgment. Now, for many of us, the idea of God being angry doesn't sit very easily. We rightly think God is loving, isn't he? Doesn't God love people? How, How do you fit anger with love? Let me tell you, it's because of love that he's angry. Let me try and give you a, an example. If you've, have you watched any of the videos of what IS have done recently? Sometimes they've just lined up a group of people, Christians, non-Christians, and live on video on, on YouTube, they've slit their throats. There's been many images of people driven from their homes, of women and children being sold into sex slavery by I.S., now, it's, it's sort of distant, isn't it? It's brought into our lounge rooms by television and modern technology. But I want to ask, when you see it and, and you realise what's going on, how do you feel? Are you nonplussed? Do you shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, boys will be boys? I hope not. I hope you're angry, aren't you? Angry that people could treat other human beings like that if you've got any moral fibre whatsoever, if you care a skerrick about other people, you'll be angry, won't you? I got a letter recently from a friend of mine who lives in in Nairobi, in Kenya. And he said his next-door neighbour has been charged with murder. And that was a bit of a surprise to him. He went along to the courtroom. And what he discovered was that some of the people who lived in the neighbourhood decided they wanted her house. She wouldn't sell it to them. She wouldn't give it to them. They tried to, a few different tactics to try and get it off her. So in the end, they framed her for murder so that she'd be locked away for the rest of her life and they could just take her house. Now, how do you feel about that sort of thing? That's, that's evil, isn't it? That they could treat a, 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 a vulnerable old lady like that just because they want her house. It seems, in fact, that they have murdered somebody themselves in order to set her up for it, in order to, to blame it on her. That's evil. Don't you feel angry? If God has a scurric of love for you, he's angry that you get mistreated. Evil will always bring righteous anger from God. And Jesus knows that. He understands that. He, he, he's felt it himself. And what he's contemplating that night on that uh, Mount of Olives is experiencing on himself the full force of the righteous anger of God against the evil of humanity. That evil accumulated over centuries and generations across the world from Hitler and IS to to the people in Eric's neighbourhood to the way I've treated my sister when we were younger. And for the son, the son who's always been at one with his father, the prospect is horrendous. And I want to suggest to you that one of the worst experiences you can experience as a human is the experience of the anger of someone who you care about. To feel their disapproval, but more than disapproval, their anger, their, their rage, the heat against you. Fully deserved, maybe, but there's nothing more painful. This is not just one little bit of that. This is the, that for the whole world. No wonder Jesus shrinks in dread as he anticipates that experience of literally going through hell. He asks his father, he begs his father that he not have to drink the cup, that his father remove the cup. But he qualifies it, if you are willing, yet not my will but yours be done. And what is the father's will? Well, it's clear that his answer to the request to avoid the cup is a, is an emphatic no. The father, hearing the cry of his own son, says no. Although the son would rather not, he's willing, yes. But if the father says no to his son's request, that request, to avoid that, then there must be no other way. If there was any other way that we could be right with God, any other way of us being reconciled to God, surely the father would have said, yes, of course, my son. But if he said no, there can't be another way. No other way to save the lost. If you think you don't need Jesus to die for you, if you think it's not essential for you and your friends and your family and everybody in this world, can I urge you to think again? Jesus, the Father, they were convinced there was no other way. And if you ask, why did the Father do it? Why did the Son do it? There's only one answer that makes sense. It's simply love, isn't it? Love for us. Love of the Father for us, that he would say no to the Son. Love of the Son for us, that he would say to his Father, your will be done, not mine. He came, the Son, to seek and to save the lost, to rescue them, not just from some meaninglessness of life as if if I haven't got something worthwhile to do, but from hell itself, from the righteous anger of a loving God. He saves by drinking the cup. And he saves too by his resurrection, by emptying the tomb. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is actually something quite hard to get your head around, I think. Jesus' death, I can make sense of that. That's not too difficult. But what do you do with a dead person who's alive again? The disciples don't know what to do. We're told in chapter 24, um, verse 41, Jesus appears with the disciples. And while uh, they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them. It's a fascinating way of saying it. it? They didn't believe it because of joy and amazement. They were just stunned. They were overjoyed, but they couldn't believe it at the same time because they'd never had that experience before. The same person who they'd seen killed, buried, was now alive with a body that was more than mortal. The significance probably was not very clear to them at that point. And Probably not very clear to us because it's, it's a singular event. It's unique. You haven't got other samples to compare it with and say, well, I know what they meant, so I can work out what this one is. But although there's not much in Luke about the significance, Acts is full of it. Volume 2 of Luke's writing is just full of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. Look yourself at chapter 2 and chapter 17 and every chapter in between. It's writ large. But there are hints along the way in Luke. Jesus has kept saying, I must die and I must rise, it's a necessary part of the Messiah's victory over his enemies, of his mission to save the lost, to bring the blessings of the kingdom, including our own resurrection eventually to his people. We get a bit of a clue in chapter 20, verse 17 of Luke. Jesus tells this little parable about the tenants. And after predicting that they will kill him, sorry, that probably killed you, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. This is what is written, verse 17 of chapter 20. The stone the builders rejected, that is the stone that the builders, the the leaders of Israel killed, has become the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone is an image that they would have understood because every time you built a building, you got the, the most true stone you could find, the most stable, large stone that was That was true and you put it as the cornerstone. So it became both the foundation and the marker that you aligned every other stone with. And Jesus is saying that even after I die, God will make me the cornerstone of God's building, God's big project, what he's going to be building through my death, he'll build on me. I'll be the foundation and I'll be the marker. Everyone will need to align themselves with me to be part of this building, this kingdom that God has brought. So from the lips of Jesus himself, we see very clearly that his mission was to seek and save the lost. And I hope it's become clear what Jesus means by that. He doesn't mean he was setting up a sort of sea search and rescue thing. To save the lost is to save sinners from hell. It's as stark, and you could say as narrow as that. And I think when it's said like that, many Christians sort of want to qualify that. They, they object. That, that sounds to him too reductionistic. It's, it's too small. I mean, all this talk of judgment and anger, of punishment and sin, it's sort of, well, it's old-fashioned. It doesn't appeal to modern people. Some even find it offensive. It certainly doesn't inspire them. That may be true. But we don't have any permission to reshape Jesus and hijack Jesus for something other than what Jesus said he was on about. Well, some people might say, Tim, that's so narrow, all this talk of saving souls. People are more than souls. They're bodies and minds and hearts. Surely we ought to be into holistic mission and integral uh, ministry. Didn't Jesus heal people and rescue people out of poverty and oppression? Surely his mission was to save from every predicament and every pain. Well, there's sort of some truth in that. But even look at Zacchaeus. He was, wasn't sick. He wasn't poor. He wasn't depressed. But he was profoundly lost. He's the sort of person Jesus came to save. I think one, of, one thing that confuses us is our own perception of our world and of people. You show me a photo of some starving, malnourished children and I can't help but feel something for them. My, my heart goes out to them. I love to do something to help them out of that, that difficult situation. I look at my own body, uh, fat and sleek and I get a, a meal three times a day and And I want to do something, and I hope you do when you see that as well. But I don't see the same thing when I see a photo of smiling, happy people like the students at university, because it seems like they need nothing. But most of them are in a much worse predicament than the starving, malnourished children because they're going to hell. And a photo can't show that. It doesn't show the pain. It doesn't show the prospect Of spending eternity cut off from God under His wrath, rightly deserved, but so easily escaped. And our friends at uni, most of them look fine, don't they? It's a perception issue. I don't see them as lost because they're not panicking, they're not insecure, they're not sort of trying to get a GPS out and wondering where they are in the world. But they will lose their lives, they will lose their souls. But isn't Jesus concerned for bodies? Well, yes, he is. And he will bring bodies to resurrection at the final day. But whatever you do to a body now, whether it's sick or hungry, it won't actually make that much difference if their soul is not saved, if they they haven't entered the kingdom. Jesus says very bluntly back in chapter 12 of Luke, chapter 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. And after that, do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. They're sobering words, aren't they? They're realistic words, I think. To simply help people's bodies, good as it is, commendable as it is, right as as it is, is really only rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Don't get me wrong. Helping people in physical and emotional difficulties and pain is a good thing. Jesus calls us to that that free generosity to those sort of people. But Jesus didn't come to fix those things when he came first. They'll be fixed in the resurrection. He came to establish his kingdom to save the lost so that finally the lost will have everything fixed. Now, why do I make a point of this? I make a point of it because I feel, and I think all of us as Christians who know Jesus and are touched by his love, a pressure for the vision to leak, to tone down this idea of salvation from sin, this talk of evil and the call to repent. It's not very popular in our country. And so it's so easy to move the focus to something more immediate, more popular. I was watching a documentary recently about the young people's ministry, young adults ministry ministry in one of, the most, one of the largest and most influential churches in Australia. And I just watched the thing. It went for about an hour or so. They interviewed many of the young adults involved in leadership uh, and in the programs of that church. And it became clear just listening to them. It, it may have been distorted by the editors, I don't know. But what they were passionate about, the only thing, in fact, they were passionate about was helping the poor, about setting up soup kitchens, about programs for street kids, There was no mention in the whole program of salvation from sin, of Jesus' death for them to give them eternal life. As I said, it may have been a distortion, but that was a church which not long ago was known for speaking about Jesus and his death. They claim they still do, but vision leaks so quickly. If we're on about helping the poor and fixing bodies, people will love you. You'll be doing nothing offensive. But please don't confuse the temporary with the eternal. Please don't allow your perception to be changed from Jesus' perception that people are lost on their way to hell. Well, what about Jesus and me? Can I ask, first of all, how you perceive yourself? Jesus perceives us in our natural state as lost. He came to seek and save sinners like us, to call us to repentance. And I'm sure in this gathering, some of us are still lost. Some of us are like the younger son. We're, we're off in a foreign land, distancing ourselves from God and staying there. There's a great story Max Licardo tells about Maria, a poor widow who lived in a Brazilian village with her 15-year-old daughter, Christina. For years, they'd survived on Maria's humble salary, but now her beautiful, joyful Christina wanted to find a job too, and there weren't many in the village. She dreamed about the exciting life in the big city. and mum tried to convince her not to go. A poor, uneducated, village kid like her would only find trouble in the city. But one morning, Maria woke up, and her daughter's bed was empty. She knew immediately where her daughter had gone, so she set out to find her. On her way to the bus bus station... She went into a, a photography booth, you know those ones where you put money in, you get all these photos. She spent all she had on pictures of herself with a her purse full of those little colour photos. She got on the bus and went into Rio de Janeiro. She knew Christina had no way of earning money and she feared the worst. When hunger bites, humans will do lots of things that were unthinkable before. Maria began to, her search through the bars and hotels and nightclubs and other places with a reputation for streetwalkers. At each place, she left her picture, taped to a hotel bulletin board, fastened on a corner of a phone booth. At the back of each photo, she wrote a little note. Soon, she ran out of photos, ran out of money. She went back home and waited. A month later, Christina descended the stairway of a cheap hotel. Her face was drawn and haggard. It now spoke of pain and fear. Her dream had become a nightmare. She felt hopeless, trapped, ashamed, She wanted to go home but couldn't. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a photo of a familiar face. She looked again and there taped to the lobby mirror was a small picture of a mother. She, She walked over and pulled the picture down and turned it over and written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Is that you? Is it time for you to come home to your creator, to be welcomed as a child, to be made part of his family? I don't know why you might be holding out. Maybe it's just that independent streak. But Jesus came to rescue you. He drank that cup for you. Will you come home? Remember the son had a little speech prepared, didn't he? Apology. Well, I guess this is the sort of thing you might want to say to God. Lord God, I've sinned against you. I've strayed a long way from you and your ways. I'm not worthy of your welcome. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. I want to live as your child from now on. Please help me. Do you want to come home? Why don't you say these words with me, if that's you? Lord God, just say it in your own heart and mind. I've sinned against you. I've strayed a long way from you and your ways. I'm not worthy of your welcome. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. I want to live as your child from now on. Please help me. Can I say that if you've said that to God, you've been welcomed. Welcomed with open arms. And if you have, you started a new life, a brand new life as a child of God. And I'd encourage you to get some help. Tell a Christian friend what you've done. Give them an opportunity for them to help you to go further. If you're someone who's already been found, you know Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and you've been found, can I say that please don't be like the older son. Align your life with Jesus. He came to seek and to save the lost. Align our lives with Jesus and his mission. Because that's actually what life is about. Amen.